who has braved the rain. I was telling someone this morning that uh, having braved the rain, you need to uh, be added to Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith. They braved the sword, they braved the rain. But seriously, thank you for uh, making an effort to come out. We are continuing in our study of James this morning. Um, We're in James chapter 5, and we're focusing on one verse. I approach this subject with a bit of uh, trepidation. Uh, This subject is not one that is preached on a lot these days, but it is in the Bible. It is a part, a very, very important part of the doctrine of our salvation and how God works things so that in the future there will be a time when we stand before the Lord and uh, we will receive um, an accounting of what we have done for him and what we have left undone for him. So with that in mind, I would like you to take your Bible to turn to James chapter 5. And uh, you notice we're starting, or we're we're focusing on one verse only, verse 9. But I want to read again the passage we went over last week, uh, starting in uh, verse 7 and going all the way through verse 11. So would you stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture? Now I want you to, to hear the commands, the exhortations that James is given, giving, And then the reason for doing that, for obeying that. He starts out, first command, be patient. The context here is in suffering, in trials. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That's the motivation that's given. Then he gives an illustration. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. I think we received both of those this morning. Second command, you also be patient. Establish, fix your hearts. Again, the motivation for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Then he shifts gears just slightly and he gives a third command. Do not grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you will not be judged. Here's the motivation. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. His second coming. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate compassionate, and merciful. Father, we praise you this day for our time of worship together here in this family of believers called Heritage Baptist Church. We thank you, Lord, that you, indeed, I don't want to make too light of it because we know that conditions like this morning can be dangerous and have caused problems, even havoc to people around our state and other states. And so we would be faithful, I hope, to pray for them. We would want to say that, Lord, thank you for sparing us. 
but please be close to those and give them exactly what they need in their trials. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be patient in trials, knowing that you are coming. You're coming soon. In fact, James says you are right at the door. And so teach us today about your second coming, and then teach us about this thing called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. Help us to leave this place not just with more knowledge in our brains, with, but with a, a motivation in our hearts to be like, more like the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. I thank you and I praise you. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go back and review. I already did just a few moments ago. We learned last week about being patient in trials because the Lord is coming. He's coming soon. And the thing that I stressed last week is that He is coming. Now remember this because these people were going through suffering at the hands of people who were oppressing them. And so even though you may not be in the same kind of situation, there are believers in Jesus Christ who are going through these things in the world. And he's saying, be patient because the Lord is coming and he is going to make everything right. He also adds the command, and we emphasized that this last week, that he says, be patient instead of grumbling. Wow, isn't that a challenge? He says, Christians, we should not be fretful in our trials leading to dissatisfaction. And many times that dissatisfaction can be misplaced. Sometimes it's, it's placed against the Lord. We can be dissatisfied with what He has done or is doing in the trials that we are going through. But hey, that doesn't sound real spiritual, does it? So a lot of times what we do is that we'll turn that to other people. And the trials we're going through can lead us to grumbling or complaining, being fretful in trials leading to dissatisfaction against other people. And he says, don't do that. Don't turn your frustrations against one another. What does, maybe not here exactly, but in another place in the Bible, the Apostle Paul reminds us that instead of complaining against one another, we are to bear with one another, recognizing that, folks, everyone in some way or at some time, and we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, everyone will let us down sooner or later. Again, what's the motivation? We saw it here just a moment ago. The motivation points to a future. Now, it changes just a little bit, not just the coming of Christ, but a future judgment. Now, everyone in this room, if you name the name of Christ, you know that when we die, we are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord. And while the details are a little bit fuzzy, we know that, or at least we should know, if you don't know, you will by the end of this sermon. We should know that we will stand before him in a thing that, now I'm going to use the word that James uses, 
Sometimes that's one of the reasons why we don't like this doctrine or we misunderstand it. We will stand before him in a thing called judgment. And that is the focus of James' words here. Now, the fact of the matter is that all people will stand before God in judgment. We should know this, not just those who name the name of Christ. We'll talk about the differences in just a minute. But we know from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die, how many men? All men, barring a return of the Lord, right? And then, not immediately necessarily, but upon the death of a person after that comes what? Judgment. So that's for all people and all Christians. But, but now the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say this to Christians. Now listen, this is so important. Because in Jesus Christ, let me just give you a little bit of a preview of what I'm going to say today. The fear of judgment needs to be erased from your mind. In case you see a verse like Hebrews 9.27 and you say, uh-oh. We go on to verse 28. So Christ, listen to this. So Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many. And if you are, are, are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are among the many. And it says here that he will appear a second time. This is so precious, a promise. Not to deal with sin. That's for us but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. We'll come to the end of this message today, and I want with with all of my heart to encourage you, to beg you, to exhort you to be a Christian who is eagerly waiting on the Lord. I think I asked this question last week. But I'll ask it again, maybe in another way. Does anyone, and I'm including Christians in this, want to go to heaven anymore? You think about that. I was talking with a brother earlier this morning, and I've mentioned this author's name in this book, and you ought to get it and you ought to read it. A book by... Randy Alcorn entitled Heaven. It's a thick book, but it's a great read. And I read that several years ago, and it stirred my heart. And I think I shared this last week, that for most of us, the older we get, it's not always the case, but the older we get, the more we look forward to heaven. Some of you more mature people, would you say amen to that? Mature not just in chronology, mature in spiritual reality as well. I think what James wants to do, and this is what I I want for my own life, this is what I want for you, church, individually and as a church, that heaven, that is meeting Jesus face to face, is our first impulse as we think toward the future. And and maybe it's not. I I asked just a moment ago, 
Does anyone, even Christians, want to go to heaven anymore? Maybe it's because of the way we live here in, in our country, at least, in the West. Because of all of the, the stuff that we have and the affluence and, and all of that, that, maybe we're not excited about Jesus coming again because we don't want him to mess up our plans that we've gone, gotten going. Or at least they've been dulled. So let's take a look at this. What I'm going to try to do today is to introduce you, if you've never heard these subjects, to what James says, but expand it by going to other passages of Scripture. And first starting with, you see the outline there, I'm going to tack on at least one thing, uh, give you a little bit of a correction or a tweak in that. But we need to take a look at this and discover what is meant by the second coming and the judgment seat of Christ. So let's first look. First question, to whom is this written? Well, you heard it a minute ago. It's written primarily to believers. It says brothers. But in reality, as we saw just a moment ago, this is a word to all people. Now, here's another question. Who is going to judge? Let me give the answer and then show you a couple of things that have caused people to question this, who's going to judge? Is it God or is it Christ? Well, our judge will be Jesus Christ as his father's representative. Let's look at two passages of scripture here and I've combined them because if you've studied the scriptures, then you will find this thing called the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to define that in just a moment. Now, it's interesting in this first passage in Romans chapter 14, it's almost a parallel to James' words. Hmm. Almost the same thought. Listen to what he says. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before, here it is, the judgment seat of God. And then in 2 Corinthians, we re read these words, for we must, again, all of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now remember, this is speaking specifically to those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to Christians. And he goes on to say, so that each one may receive what is due in the body, whether good or evil. So in one place, it's called the judgment seat of God. In another place, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Which one is it? Well, as I said a few moments ago, God has given the Son authority to execute judgment. And there should be a sense of urgency about the nearness of His coming. All right, let's move on to the third question. What will judgment look like. Now, I scoured the scriptures. I did a, a number of different studies as I tried to, to see what exactly is being spoken of here. So let me, as best I can, without getting too detailed, we just don't have enough time for that, but let me share you, uh, with you a couple of perspectives and, and to, to walk you through what, in terms of, of judgment, the New Testament says about that. There are basically three different kinds of judgments. 
All right, you can write these down if you want to. And I'm, I'm going to give you those in a particular order, and there's a reason why. Then I'm going to come back and talk just a second about that. The three judgments are, the first one is for believers. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Let's put another word in there. Bema. B-E-M-A. Now that's a transliteration of the Greek. The Bema seat of Christ. We'll define that in just a minute. So that's the first kind. That's the kind that is being spoken of here. All right? Second judgment. There will be a judgment of the sheep and the goats. All right? We'll give scripture. I'm going to have scripture in just a few minutes for that, uh, for all of these. The sheep and the goats. And then the third one is the great white throne judgment. Now, some that I have read, and if you're in this particular camp, that's okay. But you don't have to be in this particular camp. I want you to hear this. Some believe that these are three very separate events happening at very specific times that at the rapture of the church, this is a what's called a dispensational view, that at the beginning, the rapture, when the Lord comes back and raptures his church, believers will receive their glorified body and they will stand before Jesus at the Bema seat of Christ. And then at the end of the seven years of tribulation, now last week I said it really doesn't matter if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib. Judgment is coming. But in this particular way of looking at it, that will be the division of the sheep and the goats, and then the millennium is ushered in, and at the end of the millennium is the great white throne, which is for unbelievers, and that's pretty clear. Now, you can take those as three separate events. I do not have a problem personally with seeing those happening concurrently, but it really doesn't matter because all three are going to take place. Now, let's, let's go on. I'm going to give some scriptures here. The first one is for, now, on your notes, it says for unbelievers, I think, doesn't it? Let's add the word for believers and unbelievers. Now, I'm going to lump two in here. The sheep and the goats, obviously for believers and unbelievers, and the great white throne. Let's look at some scripture here. Don't get lost in all of this. Remember, three basic judgments, and we're going to come back and apply the one that we're really trying to talk about from James today. Look at this, Matthew 23. Be encouraged about this, sheep. Be exhorted by this if you're a goat. When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate, by the way, that nations may not refer to geopolitical, but the peoples of the world. And there's going to be a great separation. He will separate people one 
from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right. But the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, there is some left out here because it goes on to say that here's how you will know the differences in what they do which is a picture of who they are. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these, the goats on his left, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Wow. Do you see why? If, you, if the devil can get you into arguing, particularly if you're not in Christ, arguing about the timing of this, rather than to be convicted in your heart, I'm a goat. The offer of salvation is open. I don't want to be cast away into everlasting fire. It should be sobering word to us. Now, the second one about the great white throne at the end of the age. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Now, you need to, when you get home, to, to if you jot down these verses, to look at all of them and let them stimulate you to become as Christ is. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw, and these things, as I read them, just think, they're so big, they're so huge. The imagery is so stunning that I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, it doesn't matter if you're a king or a pauper, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I'm going to give you a hint that I'll talk about in a few minutes. Do you know why it says that? We're not saved by works. The works simply show the reality of what our heart is. They were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There will be a separating. There will be a sentencing. Remember, for believers, there's already been a judging. John 5.18, whoever believes in him, listen to this, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those two things ought to make us shudder. Now, you say, well, now, wait a minute. What about people who've been dying 
all along, unbelievers who, who die and, and go into eternity all along. And, and aren't they all, they're already condemned. But picture this, and, and I'm going to use a couple of illustrations. They're going to fail to bring the fullness of what they need to. But think of the person who has already been judged for his crime, but he is awaiting sentencing. That's a picture of an unbeliever who is yet to be cast. He is in punishment right now, but he is yet to be cast into the lake of fire. Okay, let me stop there because we're going to move on for the believer. For the believer only. Are, are you with me? Are you tracking with me? Two things that we want to avoid at all costs, and we want our neighbors to avoid at all costs, and we want our families to avoid at all costs. When I think about family members who are lost, I don't just think about them enjoying the benefits of what it means to be a Christian. I think about their eternal destiny. And you should too. Well, what about for believers? What is the Bema seat of Christ? Now, in general, here's what it is. It is a picture of a primary, this is the primary meaning, and it was used for other things. It was the seat of a judge in Greek athletic contests. A judge would be looking to make sure every contestant followed the rules. And so when a person won, then they would stand before the bema seat and the victor would receive the crown, the laurel leaf of victory. But it became known as a tribunal. And if you'll remember, there were some, Herod Agrippa, when he was, he was judging Tyre and Sidon, he sat on the bema seat. Jesus before Pilate, that was the bema seat. Paul before Gallio and Festus, the bema seat. And this is the imagery that James is using, that Paul is using. I want to show you exactly what we're talking about here. Paul uses this imagery of the, the athletic contest in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. He's not talking about games. He's talking about the spiritual life. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, an imperishable wreath. So here's reality. We must all stand. This is not an isolated teaching in the New Testament as we've already seen. Now, there are serious, eternal ramifications. But here is what you need to know, Christian, about the Bema seat of Christ. Shake out the cobwebs. I want you to get this. It is not going to be a place for punishment of sins or to determine your eternal destiny. I think that's one of the reasons why we misinterpret this whole thing and we're really not looking forward to the Bema Seat of Christ when we ought to be with a little bit of sobriety, certainly. We ought to be looking 
forward to the Bema seat of Christ, it is not going to be a time when Jesus is going to whip us and beat us up. Here's the reason that I know it. It's just one place in Scripture that reveals this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned now or forever. Paul says this in Romans 5, 1 and 8, 1. I I think for many of us, us, these are some of our favorite passages or verses of Scripture. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by works, but by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you, uh, I've got this passage because I want you to look this up so we can read it together. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 13. Look that up in your Bibles. Uh, We're not going to stand again. We're going to read this. I want you to follow along. The Bema Seat of Christ, as we'll see here in this passage of Scripture, is going to be a time, again, for believers not to be a punishment for sins that has already taken place on the cross of Jesus Christ nor to determine our eternal destiny that has already been done, but it's going to be a time when eternal rewards will be given or lost according to how, listen, how you have used your life for the Lord. So with that in mind, let's read this passage of Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. By the way, what was the foundation that the Apostle Paul laid? Well, we'll find out. Just keep reading. And someone else is building on it. So Paul laid a foundation, and then he's talking specifically about other leaders, but this can be applied to all of us. Paul laid the foundation, and he tells us in verse 11, what it is now after he says let each one take care how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid which is Jesus Christ so the foundation is Jesus Christ foundation of the church is Christ the foundation of your life is Christ but look what he says about how we build on it verse 12 now if anyone builds on the foundation with Gold, silver, precious stones. Then you can put a line right after that because he goes to an entirely different grouping of things. Wood, hay, straw. You are building today with either gold, silver, precious stones. By the way, you're living your life. Listen to me. Or you're building with wood, hay, and stubble. Okay. 
says in verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, listen, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Hmm. So which is it? What is the Bema seat going to be, the judgment seat of Christ? Is it going to be an awards ceremony? Or is it going to be our day in court? What's the answer to that? A little of both. All right, now follow me, and I'm going to try to use an illustration of of what this might look like. It's a little of both. On that day, believer, when you stand before the Lord, there's, there's the separation, but you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will assess everything he, you have done in life. Now, here's a big question that I, just in thinking this last week, it's the first time I've had this thought, but I think that it, it, it bears some meditating on, all right? I have always assumed that the Bema Seat of Christ would be that day when we stand and I'm with all of you, all right? And so everything good that I've done is rewarded. By the way, if there were among those children a minute ago and uh, they went back and prayed for, for Mike, if there were any believers, that is, that, is a, that is something that I believe someday is going to be rewarded. Okay. But there are other things, children, if you're a believer, a follower of Christ, that you have done and that you're doing that are wood, hay, and straw. They're going to be burned up. They're, you're going to suffer loss. But I had this thought last week, and, and by the way, the Bema Seat of Christ has always been not only a mystery to me, but it's been something of, uh, of, a, of a thing that I'm not really looking forward to because I'm not really looking forward to standing in front of all of you who know me, but I know me better. And having all of my dirty laundry aired. So here's a thought I want to research it more. I'm throwing it out so that you can chew on it and research it. It does not say in this passage whether that event... Now, the other two, obviously, are going to be very, very public. It does not say here contextually whether that is going to be a public event, the Bema Seat of Christ, or a private event. You know, when Peter blew it and he did not do what God, what, what Jesus wanted him to do, he denied Jesus. Three, those were lost opportunities. That, that's wood, hay, and stubble. Peter was not condemned or judged for those sins, but watch. When Jesus corrected him, what did he do? 
did he march him in front of the other disciples and say, guys, I want you to see what Peter did, the whole thing. He pulled him aside. And By the way, when you fathers or mothers discipline your children, I don't know. I hope this is not the case. That you march them in front of the whole family and say, okay, we're going to go over the list of things you did and we're going to spank in front. I know that when we were disciplining our children, it was always a very private thing behind closed doors because we wanted to communicate something very important. We wanted to communicate the reality of what they had done. And in this case, the spank, the loss of rewards, we wanted them to come clean with that just as Jesus wanted Peter to come clean with that. And to be restored. So I'm thinking, you can test this out, that this final exam, if you will, could very well be a private thing where Jesus is dealing with you. You say, wow, that's going to take a long time. We've got all eternity. And the start of it is not going to matter that much, I think, to all of us. Children, what do you feel when your mother tells you your dad is coming home and just wait till he gets here? I think that's the old way of looking at the beam of seat of Christ, punishment. But if, if, you have done, if you have done your chores and if she says, just wait till your dad gets home, he's going to evaluate what you did. Your dad gets home and he pulls you aside. And he says, wow, look at that. You made your bed. You cleaned your room. Now, let me just encourage you. You, you didn't do that so well. The, the sheet is hanging out. You, you, you could have done that. But, but it's going to be a time, I think, of great encouragement. Folks, what kind of father do we have? According to the book of Hebrews, one who will never leave us or forsake us, but one who loves us enough to bring the right kind of discipline for our good. And I believe firmly that the Bema seed of Christ is going to be that kind of experience. Why is it necessary? It's necessary to evaluate the reality of people's faith. It's necessary to reward for faithfulness and to burn up that which is worthless. And that sounds, again, awful, and it will be. If you've built most of your life with wood, hay, and stubble, then you're, you're going, that's going to be loss. But I can tell you this, and in this past week studying this, I came to a new appreciation and eagerness that in doing what God pleases, I am eager, folks, to someday stand before God and let Him take all of the worthless junk in my life the moments that I have wasted so that that can be burned up once for all 
and I can see him as he is and enter into eternity like that. I was thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What did they lose in the fire? Only what bound them. I'm so looking forward to being in heaven so that the fire can burn away all those things that have bound me. You see, our works have nothing to do with earning salvation, but they do reveal, they confirm the reality of salvation. Our deeds are not the basis of salvation. They are the evidence of salvation. They are not the foundation. What is the foundation that we are building on? Jesus Christ is the foundation. So salvation is earned by faith. It is shown by deeds And that is so important. Now, I've been asked several questions about this as we come to the very last thing. Uh, One question that I've been asked is, um, what about Christians who have no works on that day? I hope you've been here long enough to know that the Bible very clearly reveals that that is an impossibility. There is no such thing as a Christian with no fruit. A fruitless person is not a true believer, and that day will show that. And we know that there are degrees of bearing fruit, of fruitfulness, but the one thing you can know as a Christian, you may be sitting here thinking, I just don't have that much. You'll be rewarded, even if it's going out and praying for someone. A cup of cold water, Jesus said. That's one question. That I've been asked. Another question that I've been asked Will there be shame or embarrassment when I stand before the Savior and He shows me all of those wood, hay, and stubble or straw kinds of things that I've done? My answer is yes, but only momentarily. In the same way that that my Father who has given me a task to do and I know that I have not done that task as I should have done it, there will be a sense of, well, the Bible even alludes to this. 1 John says, and now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence. Our confidence is in Him and His salvation and not shrink from Him in shame at his coming. I was thinking this last week, meditating on this, what would that look like? Again, this is an illustration that it falls far short, but in the the, the movie from another time, Schindler's List, anybody ever see that movie? It was a hard, hard movie to watch, but I, I was personally so struck at the end of the movie when those Jewish people were were giving him a present to send him off and and they gave him a ring. In the movie, it shows them pulling the gold out of this guy's mouth to make a ring for him. And Oscar Schindler has this, this, this epiphany and he said, I could have done more could have done more and he breaks down he begins to weep when I first saw that I wept I thought 
that is a, a, a picture of the spiritual reality. Lord, I know that when I get there, I could have done more, but I can tell you this, I believe that it's going to be momentary because no tears get into heaven. They will be wiped away with all pain and everything else. So, what difference does it make in our lives? That's the last thing. Let me just run down a list of things and then we'll be finished with this. Ah, this is a lot of stuff. And I hope it's been an encouragement. So what difference should it make? It means that you and I will start living life, if you haven't yet, start living life in the long view. You'll start living here in light of there. That's what Randy Alcorn says. Start living here in light of there. Your posture toward God, your identity. You'll realize that you, you, weren't, you, you weren't just made for this world. You're made for eternity. You're not home yet. That's one thing. Second thing, I think it will increase your clarity. It'll give you that new perspective on people. You'll be able to be patient when you haven't been. It'll give you a new perspective on pain and suffering. That's why, as an illustration, coming up, we'll get to this hopefully next week, Lord willing, he gives the illustration of Job. More clarity about that. I was talking with a dear, dear sister yesterday who is battling triumphantly her cancer. Does that mean that she's going to whip it and all the rest of that? We don't know, and she... She doesn't know either, but she is triumphant because she's trusting in the Lord and not in the percentages that her doctors are giving her. And she's trusting in the Lord for her, her eternity. It'll give you a new clarity. It'll give you new priorities. Now, remember this. Jesus, it says in the Bible, has given us all things to enjoy, but never were they intended to be greater than the enjoyment we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the things we have here that are good foreshadow heaven. We're given those things as a temporary stewardship and blessing, but we hold it loosely. And we invest it. Our kids, and we're going to pray for them in just a minute, our students and some adult sponsors are going to be going and investing. And whether it's children going out and praying for someone or, or students going out of their comfort zone to minister in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be faithful. I think of the old saying, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. We'll have a new definition for success, not temporal standards, church life, buildings, budgets, body counts but by the ability to fight sin, overcome the world, live the values of heaven, and then enlist other recruits for the kingdom. There's one last thing that I would say. James says that he's right at the door. And that reminded me of another verse. It's a verse on fellowship, an invitation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, you know what the Lord is doing with you and me today? 
He's using this passage of Scripture to say, I'm inviting you to a deeper walk with me, to a fellowship with me, to abide with me. If anyone hears my voice today, rather than just hearing another sermon, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Father, I thank you that you truly have given us encouragement about our eternal future. There is no condemnation. But we are looking forward, Lord, to when we stand before you for that ultimate evaluation. And help it stir us, Lord, to be more like Jesus, because that is the the, the key that you're looking for as we stand before you. And help us to be stirred on to a greater sense of faithfulness to our family, to our church, to our work, to the service that we do, to our giving to missions. And Lord, we thank you. Now help us to respond as we sing this song and before we pray and we depart from this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.